0: The upcoming impeachment trial, yeah, it could very well turn out to be President Trump's Christmas gift to presidential hopeful Joe Biden. Josh Green is national correspondent at Bloomberg Businessweek. His story in the magazine, hitting newsstands today at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal. Josh joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C. You know, I really do think, Josh, I love the way you think. You think like nobody else who would have thought that this trial, you know, what the implications are for some of these Democratic presidential uh, hopefuls. Tell us about what you wrote about.
2: Yeah, well, the the irony of the impeachment saga as it pertains to Democrats is that Trump was impeached because he was trying to dig up dirt uh, on the guy he presumed would be his toughest opponent, Joe Biden, and was hoping to take him down and peg or disqualify him. Uh, but as it turns out, if you look at the polls throughout this year, Biden has been the front runner and remains the front runner. And now, as we look ahead to early 2020 to January with the beginning of the Senate's impeachment trial. Uh, The effect that's going to have on the Democratic race is that it is going to force five of the Democratic contenders, uh, all senators, including two of the frontrunners, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, to spend the critical weeks before the Iowa caucuses sitting on Capitol Hill while Joe Biden will find himself uh, with the advantage of being able to campaign in Iowa.
1: And as you point out in your piece, uh, Josh, which is so smart is that and it's not just them, but people who really have maybe even more on the line in terms of the very existence of their campaign, people like Senator Amy Klobuchar. Yeah,
2: I mean, what we've seen this year is every time there's a big news event, uh, whether it's, it's uh, Ukraine or the Mueller report, the trade war, you name it, it has the effect of essentially freezing in place the Democratic field. The people who are frontrunners remain frontrunners, the people who are lagging behind stay there. Well, the six weeks between now and Iowa are especially important for candidates who have lately been gaining momentum. And the one who stands out to me is Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, uh, who's from a neighboring state in Iowa, who is a moderate, uh, who, who, who has a real kind of Midwestern charisma that lately polls show uh, have been connecting with Iowa vo- voters. Unfortunately for Klobuchar, she is going to have to spend a couple of weeks, at least a couple of weeks in January, uh, sitting in a Senate hearing room uh, listening to a trial whose outcome is basically foreordained, Trump isn't going to get removed, uh, while uh, the people that she's running against, or a number of the people she's running against, are going to be back in Iowa trying to close the deal with voters she would much rather be talking to
0: yeah it's it's just kind of ironic how this all plays out. I do wonder too about, in general, when we look at the impeachment proceedings and as they move along, what has this meant in terms of President Trump and his popularity uh, overall among the American public?
2: well, as as with everything Trump, what it's done is uh, intensely polarized the American people. If you look at Democrats and Democratic voters, uh, more than ninety percent agree with Trump's impeachment, flip it around, look at Republicans, more than 90% of them disagree. So in terms of the Democratic primary coming up, uh, it, it's only a factor in so far as it removes half the Democratic field from Iowa where they'd like to be. Uh, how it plays out in in, in the broader general election, I, I guess we really can't know yet. But on the other hand, you know, we, co- we kind of can know. And it's going to divide the country basically in half, just like right. everything else Trump's Trump does. Always a possibility something strange comes out. But I'd have to imagine, even in that sense, if there is something unusual in the Senate trial, where we're going to end up is the same place we started with America split 50-50.
0: Hey, Josh, does it change the thinking at all, though, that I think there were some saying that each of these candidates are going to maybe win, you know, one of the early primaries, it was going to kind of be split between everybody, that nobody was going to have a clear majority. And I do wonder, based on your story, does that change kind of the thinking around that?
2: You know, it's 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 hard to know. I mean, I would say from the vantage point of right now, today, it doesn't change because if you look at Iowa and if you look at the early Democratic states generally, there are a cluster of front runners. Four in particular: Biden, Buttigieg, sander and Warren. Right now, Iowa polls have Buttigieg on top, but if you pull back, Bernie Sanders is also doing well. Joe Biden is winning overall. Uh, Warren has stopped or fall and begun to recover a little bit. So we really can't know. And of course, so much is going to change or, or could change depending on the outcome in Iowa, who wins, who has momentum, and how voters
1: react from there. You know, Josh, I go back to so much of the work you've done leading up to this, even back to the 2016 election, and your understanding and and your explanations through your book, Devil's Bargain, largely about Steve Bannon, that Trump base. What have you learned, if anything, about that base through this impeachment process?
2: Well, I've learned that they are completely loyal to Trump. I mean, Trump you know, said at the outset when I spoke to him uh, just after he wrapped up the nomination in May of 2016, he said, I'm going to put my stamp on the Republican Party. It's going to become the party of Trump. Lo and behold, that is precisely what it has become, the party of Trump. There's no room for dissenters. People who wanted dissent have left. You saw it in the outcome of the House vote, not a single Republican defection. And not only that, we now have a a Democrat in Jeff Van Drew defecting over to the Republican side. So what I have seen is that Trump has consolidated his hold on Republican voters. Hasn't done a lot with independents, and that's why he is not a lock for reelection. But as far as Republicans go, Trump owns the Republican Party.
0: Hey, just 25 seconds here. So if uh, Trump is the Republican Party, what is the Democratic Party?
2: Unclear. I mean, that's what makes this whole thing so interesting. I mean, you have clear splits, you know, in terms of age, Buttigieg and Biden, in terms of politics. You have liberals and centrists. We don't know. It's not clear voters know. They could differ between states. We may, we may well not know until the Democratic Convention in July. It really could go that far who Democrats are going to wind up picking.
1: All right. Great to catch up with you, Josh Green, national correspondent for Bloomberg Week. His piece, check it out. In the latest edition of Bloomberg Business Week, may make you think about impeachment in a different way. And we should point out, Mike Bloomberg, founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, Bloomberg News's parent, as well as the parent Bloomberg Radio, is seeking the Democratic presidential nomination you're listening to bloomberg business week with carol masser and jason kelly on bloomberg radio well let's head down to baltimore dr tom inglesby joins us there on the phone he is the director of the johns hopkins center for health security at the bloomberg school of public health and we should point out the bloomberg school of public health supported by mike bloomberg founder of bloomberg lp and bloomberg philanthropies Uh, dr inglesby thanks so much for joining carol and myself
3: Uh, Thanks for having me. All
1: right. right. So help us understand the whole notion of global pandemics. To start, what are we talking about? Because it feels like that's a word that is scary to most people. But let's define some terms here.
3: Yeah, a pandemic is a disease outbreak or an epidemic that has spread around the world. So it could be something relatively mild. Every year we have influenza that spreads around the world, and you could call that Kind of a very very mild pandemic, but we could also see in the future pandemics of diseases which have a much higher impact on people. Could could sicken more people? Could kill more people?
0: Yeah, I mean this is certainly something that I, definitely not in the headlines, right? Until it becomes a major headline, and all of a sudden we're all over it and trying to figure out the implications of it. But talk to us about like kind of where we're seeing this happen. Is it um, all around the world? Is it? You know, I think we always make the assumption, uh, Dr. Inglesby, that it's, you know, developing, the developing world, um, and that until it hits the developed world, do we all get concerned. But tell me a little bit about geographically where it's all happening.
3: Well, a couple examples of that. So back about 10 years ago, we saw a new outbreak of influenza called 2009 H1N1 flu, and that, that spread around the world. It started in the Americas. It was in Mexico, the United States, and then seemed to spread around the world quite efficiently. And then more recently, we had the Zika virus, which started in uh, in South America, and also spread efficiently around the world to more than 100 countries. So it kind of depends on the virus, depends on the disease, but I think the whole world needs to be better prepared for it right. and have things in place.
0: Well, let's talk about what we need to do to prepare, because I'm assuming that y- the assumption is we're going to see more of whether it's Zika or something to the like, we're going to see that happening more frequently, correct? Is that the exactly. assumption? All right, so what what do we need to do to be prepared?
3: Well, I think especially this audience on on this radio show, uh, businesses have a major role to play in preparing for and responding to global pandemics. So we need to do things like stockpile medicines and vaccines in places where they could be distributed quickly, send medical supplies or be able to send medical supplies around the world, finance response in a crisis, and travel and trade has to have to be preserved when things are going wrong. And those are all things that Private sector, that the private sector really controls and drives. And so <clears throat> countries are going to need to work very closely with global business to prepare for uh, responding to epidemics in the future, pandemics in the future.
1: And so what does that look like from a, I mean, you know, I, I just think about the logistics of a business, especially a yeah. global business that's sending people, as you say, sort of all over the world. What's the responsibility here in, in some ways, not just to employees, but to customers? You know, we're at a time where it feels like, rightly, much more is being expected of, com- expected of companies beyond just, you know, keeping their shareholders and employees happy.
3: Yeah, that's a great point. So we had a big pandemic exercise in New York uh, back about six weeks ago called Event 201, and we tried to tease through the kinds of responsibilities of big business, how they compare to the responsibilities of countries. And so we had businesses like Marriott, Johnson & Johnson, A&Z Bank, Lufthansa, UPS. And what what we saw in this exercise was that countries, governments alone, can't manage a big pandemic on their own. Businesses alone certainly can't do it but there needs to be a partnership between the two. And part of that would be corporate responsibility. But part of that is businesses saying what they need from governments ahead of time. If you want us to be delivering medicines and vaccines in a crisis, we need to know what your planning expectations are, governments. So it is a dialogue. It's common planning between countries and, and business, which is going to be a crucial partner.
0: So dialogue, but then you've got to have the systems in place. So are we moving forward on that?
4: Yes,
3: I think there's much more discussion of it. There is more planning around that. There's a lot that needs to be done. Uh, But it does seem like there are many global business leaders who recognize the risk to business from pandemics and who see the role that they need to play and that they want to play in developing systems to respond.
1: And individuals, what's the best thing we can be doing? I mean, you know, we get flu shots and and whatnot. But are are there other things that we should be doing and thinking about?
3: Well, I mean, one thing is just to make sure that your elected officials know that you care about things like this. This is one of the problems, it's kind of a problem of the commons. Individuals can't make medicines and vaccines on their own. They have to kind of rely on the scientific expertise of their countries and the companies that make these products. So kind of expressing your interest in being a prepared country uh, in working with, with with the scientific community to develop these things, that's important. And then kind of knowing your local preparedness plans. What's your health department going to do in your state? Right. Uh, What does your community do if there is a a crisis where you need to rely on each other? Those kinds of things, I think, are kind of high priorities for people who want to get involved.
1: Good stuff. A lot of food for thought. Thank you so much, Dr. Tom Inglesby, Director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. Joined us on the phone from Baltimore and the Bloomberg School of Public Health, of course, supported by Mike Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP, Bloomberg Philanthropies, parent of Bloomberg Radio. Within the cell of silence So and we want to talk a little bit about Me Too
0: um, and how it's impacted the financial community. The silence meeting, it feels like it hasn't quite impacted the community like Wall Street specifically, like we've seen in other industries, whether it's entertainment, the news industry, and more. Well, I would
1: take silence in yet another way, which is that a lot of the complaints have been silenced by the system, and that's what makes this story yes. so complicated uh, in a lot of ways.
0: Well done. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, in the finance section of the magazine, um, and it's on newsstands, online, and on the Bloomberg. Kata Porsikanski is investing reporter at Bloomberg News. She wrote Writes about how Wall Street still does not get it when it comes to Me Too. She joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Broker studio, um, Katya. It is a great story. Jason and I have been talking about it a lot this week because it is kind of staggering why Me Too doesn't. It hasn't had the same of impact that it has on some other industries. That's right. I think um, you know when the Me
5: Too movement took off, we. N- Figured it was only a matter of time before The financial industry was shaken by it As well I mean we know that The problems that exist in other industries Certainly exist in this one Um even maybe even more so We have a very male dominated industry And um as that as the st- and we would hear stories, but there was a reluctance to get them out um, by by the women themselves um, for a number of reasons and we thought you know we need to take a step back and I think this year we've seen a lot of stories that kind of either took that step back and examined what the cultural um infrastructure is that keeps this keeps women quiet mm-hmm. um or in in the case of other stories we finally had some leaks as you would yeah. call them from the industry um such as from Lloyd's of London and um, and of course the whole Ken Fisher saga so it's been a i think it's a it's been a year of reflection um and and also a kind of an asses- assessment
1: well and a year of discovery i think through your reporting where we've come to learn that there is a system that does effectively silence people, and specifically around arbitration.
5: Exactly. So it's you know, I and mean, you could even say it starts even long before that. Yeah. Because first you have the culture of fear that prevent women from even saying anything at all, um, because they think they're going to have a target on their back for the rest of their career. Then even if they want to come forward to HR. Um, a lot of women are dissuaded by HR by the from, HR by the HR department yeah. from pursuing their claim. Told this is going to ruin your career, um, or not giving them, uh, you know, not giving them the support that they need in that situation, and then. You have the next step, which is, okay, so you've gotten past HR, now you file filed a complaint, and now you're forced into arbitration, because most of Wall Street has these binding arbitration agreements that basically place you in arbitration, even over a case of harassment, which has nothing to do with, you know, um, let's say a squabble uh, uh, over
0: a deal. I got to ask you, because we've seen the technology you know, industry walk away from those arbitration agreements. Um, I am curious when you guys do the reporting, and I know you you, you point how the, ed, you know, kind of the HR and the company machine kind of kicks into gear when you want to do reporting, but I, I do wonder what's the response you get when you're, you ask them, because I'm assuming that you have, say, well, why don't you get rid of these arbitration agreements? Because it does really tie an individual, and in particular, a woman's hands from fighting back. That's a
5: great question. First, I think in the tech industry, you had the employee themselves walking out and yeah. a lot of pressure from them and you know I guess at the end of the day we have a different cut of people on Wall Street that aren't yeah. willing to throw their their you know their they're not willing to do that, um, and you have obviously a really male-dominated industry. Though the tech industry is obviously very male-dominated, but as that's well. a big part of but it that
0: the women have not been able to get ex- to those top right. tiers
5: exactly. And um, and then and then you have the the, the counter argument from Wall Street is just listen, this is a cheaper, uh, more effective system. It's faster. Not everything needs to be litigated in court. Some of these things are just workplace issues. Um, it's it could potentially cheaper for the woman to, and actually, you know what? Some women prefer to be in arbitration because they don't want their. Um, it's not that that's their dirty laundry, but they don't necessarily want the details of these potentially horrific things that happen to them out in the public. Right. Um, that, as we discuss, it does it. it can and will follow her around her career, and she may not want that. But
0: do women win those arbitration cases? Like, what's the statistics on this? And within the financial community, that when you've got a, a, a woman who brings a case like this and it goes to arbitration, how often, you know, is it found out that it works out in her favor?
5: So the Intercept did a analysis of um, arbitration sexual harassment cases in, arbitra- in Finra arbitration, and because um, Finra has its own arbitration branch. And found that of about 100 cases of sexual harassment um, uh, complaints, only 17 women had won them. And when you look at the panels in, in FINRA, um, they're mostly male, they're mostly white. So you're not having the, you know, your jury of your peers that you might have in a courtroom. And the judgments that you get in FINRA or in the other arbitration um Uh, settings are often very small um, as as opposed to what you could get from court.
1: And so Katya, it felt like we did have at least a couple moments, a couple cracks here in 2019, the back half of 2019, really. One, you mentioned Ken Fisher. That's an ongoing saga to some extent. Feels like there's more to come on that story. But talk a little bit about what happened at BlackRock, where you had two very senior executives dismissed by Larry Fink and now there's some reporting by Bloomberg and others that says Larry Fink essentially said in the last year or so, listen, top twenty guys, and most of them are guys yeah. at BlackRock, uh clean up or you're out and now they're out is this an important moment what do we take from this you
5: know it's that's actually something that we've been debating a lot about um fisher as well i think is a question mark of whether or not this is an important moment that he got in trouble at all right and and then he got in trouble but then like they and pension funds pulled four billion but he still manages like well over a hundred billion dollars yeah so is that really punishment i don't know so yes you can say you also know that obviously we all know blackrock has like a big emphasis on corporate governance and like you know Mm -hmm. they expect a lot of the companies that they invest in so they probably expect a lot from themselves and it's part of their image and it's important that they have this image they're also a publicly traded company maybe that has part of it you know Wall Street we do have a lot of publicly traded banks but we also have a ton of private companies hedge funds and private equity Somebody's got
0: to care enough and to me it's got to start at the top with the CEO to say this is unacceptable we cannot you know this cannot continue. It
1: also has to go and you alluded to this with the Fisher saga to the source of money. If people stop giving them money, they will change their behavior, presumably. Right.
0: But why does it have to come to that? Why can't people just do it right from the beginning? Because I guess on Wall Street, you vote with your you know, wallet.
5: Yeah. That's what, you know. So These are
1: economic creatures.
5: Th- that's what they respond best to, right? Yeah.
1: That's Seems what they like. know. <laughs> well, it's a really important story, and we know that there's while doing this right,
0: was- right, and then there's doing wrong. That's I don't true. know. I, I don't learned know. that when Absolutely. I was like five- Not
1: everyone's as good as you. No, I'm not great.
0: I'm just saying there's right and there's wrong.
1: Katja Portuganski, you are great. Thank you so much. Terrific story in Bloomberg Business Week this week. You can Well, magic is one word for what big financial firms do, and maybe they do it to maybe obscure some things that they don't want the world to see. Vernon Silver is projects and investigations reporter for Bloomberg. He joins us on the phone from Rome. His story is a must read if you want to understand, especially what's gone on since the financial crisis. Wall Street magic tricks makes make banks look safer than they are. Vernon, great to have you with us. Hey. All right. So I love this story because you break it down into several sections that really are a bit of a roadmap to how banks are behaving, maybe not so clearly. Uh, talk to me about the thing that jumped out to you the most of these.
4: I mean, it's just that these tricks that they can do haven't, A, have only changed in small bits since the crisis, which itself was built on uh obscuring the true health of banks through little tricks um and that the tricks that are being employed whether they're legal you know in a gray area or just being discovered now by regulators in the u.s and in europe um really have to deal with the most fundamental things about a bank's uh, stability their capital their liquidity in other words their ability to pay the bills uh things go wrong and and to cover up trading losses Uh, in other words uh, obscuring the ability of investors, unless they really dig, or regulators, you know, unless they really understand what's going on, to to gauge whether banks are going to face another crisis.
0: Well, and it's interesting, too. I mean, walk us through some of the other, you know, you talk about losing leverage, risk hiding, capital relief, um, you know, in terms of how you break down this story. You know, what is it that you think investors need to be so aware of when it comes to what's going on at some of these firms?
4: I mean, one, one of them is that there can be multiple measures in one earnings report of what a bank's health is. Mm-hmm. That there's discretion, um, you know, when it comes to capital of describing, you know, how big or small the bank is. You know, smaller a smaller bank can seem um, by saying, you know, at this risk over here, this capital we will only take 50% of of those securities over there and count them, you know, we'll we'll decide that none of these bonds, even if they're from Greece or Italy, should really count at all. Legally, they can do that. Um, But, you know, some of the trickier stuff, there's one we found where uh, the European uh, central bank regulators found that almost a dozen big banks across Europe, every 30 days at the same exact time, saw a certain measure of their ability to confront a crisis their liquidity ratio drop off the cliff and um, they euphemistically at the ecb called it a optimization uh, tactic that was happening and and they and they are as we speak are investigating why and how exactly these banks are doing it because if you look at the you know oh, at the end of that month they were fine if you look a day before or a day after their their financial picture of these big european banks is much different
1: so, Vernon, I got to think a lot of people reading this, maybe they're not surprised that banks are trying to get away with something, but might be a little bit surprised because post-financial crisis, there was a lot of legislation, a lot more regulation. What didn't regulators or lawmakers do, or how are they getting worked around?
4: I mean, the main thing they, they didn't do is change the incentives. Mm. Like, they're still there's still quarterly earnings. Bonuses are still based on how well your unit did, whether it's your trading desk or the, the incentives haven't changed. And that hasn't changed the nature of wanting to do everything you can to look as good as you can. And the, the other crucial thing is it's been a little over a decade now since since the crisis. Um, some call it a complacency that's that's sunk in and some. You know, the, the banks are arguing to roll back some of these regulations, and it's happening. And they have good arguments for it. It's like, you know, do we need belts and suspenders? You know, we, right. we understand, you know, what, how it went wrong. You know, let us take our money and go invest it and, you know, and build our business rather than making us sit on a war chest.
1: So, Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week, uh, just swung in. Uh, what do you have to ask, uh, Vernon? This is a great story. I, I You know, the, Vernon's covered a lot of this from a lot of different angles. Through the years, and so Vernon, the thing I just wanted to ask you was like, what? Do you, what was the most revelatory thing that you learned from from working on this? Yeah, you
4: know, it was it was that you know we've been following this case in Italy that involved some of the biggest banks, Deutsche Bank, Nomura, and Monte Paschi, uh, the world's oldest bank, been covering this thing for years and years, and it wasn't until last month. When these guys, 13 of them, bankers, senior executives, got convicted in the Milan court, and we realized sort of the size and scope of that moment was this was the first convictions of top executives from major global banks ever since the crisis. That literally did not happen until last month, and this was for covering up uh, $800 million in losses that they just made, poof, go away one week. Um, and, and, of course, that, that cover-up
1: was the crime in this Right. Case. No, it's really interesting. Right,
4: exactly. The cover-up was the crime.
1: Yeah. All right. We're going to leave it there. Vernon Silver, Projects and Investigations reporter for Bloomberg. He joined us on the phone from Rome. His story, Wall Street Magic Tricks Make Banks Look Safer Than They Are. A really important story, I feel like, especially coming to the end of a year where everybody did great, stocks are up. Everything's healthy in the financial system. Maybe not so much. Maybe they're, maybe they, they may just be hiding some things.
0: Yeah, exactly. Our thanks to Joel Weber as well, editor of Bloomberg Business Week in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio.
1: I'm driving in my car. Turn on the radio. Hey, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I wanna drive.
3: Just drive, baby.
1: Just drive, baby.
4: It's the question that drives
1: us This is The Drive to the Close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It's for The Drive to the Close. We do it every day around this time. Alan Zafrin back with us, founding partner and co-CEO of IEQ Capital. He joins us on the phone from Foster City, California. Alan, great to have you back with us. Jason,
6: great to be on again. Thank
1: you. All right. So, Alan, Carol and I had a little bit of a moment earlier in the program where we were we had a little bit of a back and forth about what the rest of the year may bring. It feels pretty good. Every, equities, obviously, at a record here in the U.S., but last year still sort of lingers in some of our minds. That turbulence that we experienced doesn't feel like it's going to happen. But is there anything that worries you uh, as we get to the end of 2019?
6: Um, I'm always always worried, but as a practical matter, no. You've got impeachment in front of you. You've got all kinds of geopolitical concerns. The Hong Kong situation is unsettled. It's not clear exactly what's going to happen with Brexit, and the market just goes up anyway. And so, you know, in an environment where you can't even find candidates for tax loss harvesting, it's pretty hard to find motivations for sales. And you're going to see year-end window-dressing portfolio managers trying to buy things that are already up, to make it look like that's what they held all year when they take a one-time snapshot at the end of the year. It's going to take a lot that neither you or I could predict in the next couple weeks to stop this market from continuing upward at least through year-end.
0: All right. So th- at least through year end. Okay. And that's pretty short term, obviously. What does 2020 hold? Because I do wonder, with it being an election year, well, we've had a lot of talk around this table that once the Fed sets it's policy, probably by spring, they're not going to play around too much because it is an election year. So what does that necessarily mean?
6: Okay. I'm, I'm going to separate that into two pieces. I'm going to start with the economy and then tell you what I think it means for financial markets. The economy is set to do terrific in 2020. You had the Fed cut rates three times in the summer and early fall. Uh, Academics will tell you that the biggest impact economically from rate cuts shows up 12 months forward. So conveniently, the economy is probably going to be peaking from the impact from the rate cuts right around the September or October timeframe. Also, to the extent we're making nice with China and finding some political solution, it eliminates uncertainty executives can start making business decisions, and with the delayed effect, some of that impact will show up in the third quarter next year. The economy is in pretty darn good shape. What does that mean for the markets? Of course, there's always going to be elevated political uncertainty. However, to the event that there's a sense that the economy is moving at a reasonable pace but not too aggressively, as long as interest rates don't go up too dramatically, you're still in this really ideal environment to be a stockholder. Revenues are growing, but my costs, my labor costs, my input costs are not going up a lot. Inflation is not a problem yet. And in this environment, that's a wonderful place to own stocks. So the die is cast for a positive year next year, which if it weren't for the uncertainty of a political election, you might be surprised how much stocks might even go up next year. So I would tell you, we here, if anything, are leaning on the bullish, bullish side, given the strong economic backdrop from which the year begins.
1: So, Alan, you know, it's interesting. I was just reading a story, which I wanted to ask you about, because you're so familiar with sort of all the technology sort of corridors of our country, you know, joining us there from from Foster City. You know that area so well. I, I think over, I think about the past year where a lot of the wealth that we expected to materialize from all these big IPO's. Either didn't materialize, the wealth didn't, or the IPOs didn't happen, and yet, sort of the private market keeps sort of chugging along. Do you foresee that continuing? Do you still see all that money, the, that alternative money, going into you know tech companies and and companies in sort of a fast growth trajectory?
6: Uh, I absolutely do. There's no shortage of optimism here <laughs> in California, particularly in the Bay Area, with respect to finding the next uh, unicorn. I will say this, though. Um, It's been a wake-up call this year. Uh, Not just the debacle at WeWork, but even the disappointment from the Uber IPO. And if you actually look at a significant number of small and mid-sized software companies that came out screaming and the prices have fallen materially, we can rattle them off the Zooms and the Slacks of the world. The, the, The marketplace is being more discerning with respect to really funding cash burning entities, and I would assert that's actually a positive. It makes you realize the system, to a degree, is working. The public markets, in particular, are effectively saying we're not going to finance you indefinitely. This is why Uber, as an example, is starting to back away from the cash burning businesses. Uh, it's it's um it's time to realize that public stockholders are going to hold these companies ultimately accountable, and st- accountable and stop the cash burn. So. I- Money is absolutely chasing the next unicorn, but valuations are starting to recognize that there needs to be sanity from the point of management of ultimately driving cash returning back to shareholders.
0: So it's interesting. Peter Core has a great story in Bloomberg Business Week this week that's takes you know specifically a look at Bubbles. Jason and I talked to him earlier this week, and it'll be in our weekend show. But there's a quote from um, Michael Hartnett. He's a chief equity strategist over at B of A Global Research. He said, quote, we enter the next decade with interest rates at 5,000-year lows, the largest asset bubble in history, a planet that is heating up, and a deflationary profile of debt disruption and demographics. And I do wonder, you know, is everybody just – you know, chasing with, especially with, you know, not a lot of active management, it feels like much more passive management. Is everybody getting a little bit lazy here?
6: Hmm. Well, I'll tell you one thing. That gentleman won't be running for president on that platform. <laughs> um, yeah, right. You know, I don't, I don't want to call it laziness. Um, I want to tell you that um, we have unfortunately become conditioned into an environment where when there's a problem, central bankers show up and throw more money into the system. Which keeps rates low, which keeps investors' willingness to throw money into yielding assets like stocks, like real estate, and it keeps the prices elevated. So should uh, rates be higher here? Ourselves.
0: Do you think rates should be higher here?
6: Uh, no, I actually one of the reasons I'm reasonably optimistic or bullish is I think for a variety of reasons like aging populations, rates of economic growth are slower and rates will be here for quite a long while. Mm -hmm. And the shocking part, if you really believe that to be true, if I pay 20 times earnings my 20 times PE on the stock market, Mm -hmm. that's like saying I put $100 into a stock, I get $5 back, that's 5% back on my stock. 5% 5% is 3% more than a 2% 10-year treasury. Right. Yeah. you go back over the last 60 years, that average is only half of a percent. We, should, we could trade at 25 times earnings. So, right. No, I don't, I don't think rates are going up anytime soon. All
1: right. We're going to leave it there. Great to catch up with you. Alan Zafrin, always so thoughtful. Founding, partner, and co-CEO of IEQ Capital on the phone from Foster City, California.